0: Okay, let's turn please to Jeremiah chapter thirty-two. Joe, how you doing? You good? Good. Sylvia, did you win that altercation with our security? Okay. Okay. <laughs> Jeremiah 32 also will be in Romans chapter 8. Our chest is still breaking the tape of this race, which we call Romans. And today I'm not asking for much, only that you listen as if your life depends on it. Jeremiah 32. Your words were found and I did eat them and your words became the joy and rejoicing of my heart, said Jeremiah in 15, 16. Look up the word word in your concordance and see how many times it's used in Jeremiah. And we know from Romans 1, 2 and Romans sixteen twenty five and 26, that the gospel about God's son, which universally embraces all of humankind, is found in the writings of the prophets. It was hidden there until Christ came. Now, all the scriptures has to be interpreted in the light of the risen Christ, the crucified Christ, risen, exalted, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he sheds light on the word from that place. And so now, with meekness, teachability, humility, and courtesy for others, we receive the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. So that's what I mean by listen as if your life depends on it. But I say that knowing that the Holy Spirit and he alone can arrest our attention and hold our attentiveness on his word. And we're depending utterly on that. Jeremiah 32, and I've translated this from both the Hebrew and the Greek texts. He begins with a primitive interjection. Ah, ah, H-A-H-A-H in the Hebrew, just ah in the English. Ah, Adonai, Lord God, Yahweh uses the word Lord in L O R D and L O R D all in caps both. It's an exclamation. Ah, Adonai, Yahweh. You yourself made, and he uses the Hebrew word asa, so we have ah, ah, and followed by asa. The poetry of the Hebrew prophets sometimes is lost in the English translation. Ah, Adonai Yahweh, you yourself made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. That same word arm is used in Isaiah 53.1, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He goes on to say, nothing is too extraordinary for you. We could say that every miracle wrought by God is something ordinary to him. Nothing is too extraordinary. Extraordinary, too difficult, too hard for him. In verse 18, he says, you show faithful love. Now, the Hebrew for this is chesed. And the Greek translation has the famous word, eleos, eleos, which means mercy. And you'll note that at the high point of Romans, one of the high points, we're at the other high point, Romans 8.32. Romans 11.32 God will show mercy to all, or he has shown mercy, Elias, to all. And all means all. Nothing is too extraordinary for you. Verse 18, you show faithful love. Now, I had this promise in my heart when I came here for the first time in 1978, and I did not see this interpretation of it until now. On a special day, 519, May 19th. Special because it's one of my favorite verses, Romans 5.19. If you look it up, back to back with 5.18. Nothing is too extraordinary for you, said the prophet to the Lord. You show faithful love, that's mercy or faithfulness or grace is another word for it, to thousands, some people add here thousands of generations from Exodus 20 and verse six, there are echoes here in the prophets from the Torah of Moses, the law, the prophets echoes from Exodus 20 and verse six. And more importantly, from Exodus 34, seven, it's a way of saying here, you show faithful love to thousands is a way of saying that his grace is upon all of the human race. Romans 11:32, and that it's on the human race. Endlessly through Jesus Christ. Psalm 1850, which in the Greek text of Psalm 1850, both Yeshua and Christos are found. Jesus and Christ are found. Notice this in verse 19, where I want to really have the accent fall. Great in resolve. We could say resolution or resolve. Great in resolve. This word I found to my great surprise and delight boule b-o-u-l-e in the Greek is also found in Ephesians 1 and that's very telling boule great in resolve God is great in resolve and his resolve is according to Ephesians 1 9 through 11 to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. What was first in God's resolve before time and eternity was to summarize everything in Christ Jesus. And what is last or ultimate in his execution is that he did sum up everything in Christ Jesus in the Christ event and will manifest that completely in the coming of Christ. Great in resolve and mighty in actions, omnipotent in his actions, that means that he's not only great in resolving to do something, but he's mighty in the execution of that resolve. Big difference between God's will and ours. We may will something, but the flesh is weak. God wills, and what he wills or resolves, he accomplishes. He will accomplish all of his will, and it is his will that all people are saved and that they come to the knowledge of the truth that's embodied in Jesus. Those are two different things, of course. Great in resolve and mighty in actions or execution. Your eyes are on the ways of human beings in order to give to each person according to his ways and according to the fruit of his actions. The ultimate reference here is to Jesus Christ, who is the way and the truth and the life. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Causes an interpretation of this verse to say that God gives to every person. According to Jesus Christ's ways. And finished work. That's the gospel. That Adonai Yahweh made the heavens and the earth by his great power and his outstretched arm speaks of the Christ event in which Christ's arms were outstretched. We rarely see the cross of Christ as the creative event in which God creates all things new. The outstretched arm here is the outstretched arms and shoulders of Jesus Christ by which God created all things anew, made all things new. And the great power of God was exerted in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead what makes what God makes by that event the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a new heavens and a new earth in which all the things and beings of heaven and all of the things and beings on earth in all of its times are reconciled by the peace that God made through the blood of the cross of the son of his love Colossians one hundred thirteen and 1.20. twenty. Thousands of generations is how it's interpreted sometime, though thousands is all that's really found here, is not to be taken literally or numerically, but metaphorically as a term that indicates all of humanity, in the same way that many is taken to mean all by a comparison of Romans five hundred eighteen with Romans five nineteen many equals all. And by a comparison of Mark 10.45 and Matthew 20.28 20, with First Timothy 2.6, as we've seen many times before. Moreover, God is said plainly to show mercy to all in Romans 11.32, so there should be no contradiction. He shows mercy to thousands equals he shows mercy to all, Romans 11.32. He applies justification to all, not because all believe, but because of the faithful love and meritorious obedience of Jesus Christ for all. Obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Philippians two eight through eleven. Romans five eighteen and nineteen once again. Romans eight thirty two makes it clear that this was for us all. And in the word all, there is not only universality, but also unity. All denotes universality, but it also denotes unity. Paul's whole point in Romans is to bring the universality of the gospel to bear, to create a unity among the saints in Rome and among the saints here in our time. And so, if you do want to look at it briefly, if not, you can note it. And it will be in print on the website, so you don't have to look at this now. But in Exodus 34, this is a very misunderstood verse. Moses asked to see the glory of Yahweh. And Yahweh obliged him somewhat. He put him in the cleft of a rock, which is a picture of us being hid with Christ in God. And he passed before him, and he made this announcement. It said, Yahweh passed over in verse 6. Before Moses' face and called out, he was announcing himself, Yahweh, Yahweh, God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant in kindness and truth, or grace and truth. Keeping kindness for thousands. You see how that word is echoing into Jeremiah. And taking away iniquity and transgression and sin. Please notice that. And then it says, and not entirely acquitting. In the Old Testament times, God did not entirely acquit the human race. He gave, through Moses' law, a prescription called the Levitical prescription in which offerings were made that foreshadowed the full justification that would come in the death of Christ, but did not bring full acquittal. But God did not also impute or charge or account sins to people during that time. He was saving them up, according to Romans 3.25, to lay them on Christ. Now, this is extremely important that we understand not only the universal horizon, but the very important center from which all are saved. And that's the cross of Christ, the death of Christ, followed by his inevitable resurrection. For he said, the father has given me a commandment to lay my life down. And if I lay my life down, I have the power to take it back up again. John 10, 17 and 18. So again, Yahweh passed over before Moses' face and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, I am that I am, I am that I am. God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in kindness and truth, keeping grace for thousands taking away iniquity and transgression and sin and not entirely acquitting, that is until the cross, visiting iniquity of fathers on children and on children's children on a third generation and a fourth. We could say and on and on it goes. It looks like God punishes a third and fourth generation or a following generation for the sins of the fathers. He's not saying that. He's saying that from one generation to the second, to the third, to the fourth and so on, he keeps sins at bay until he lays them all on Christ. And what he did proactively before Christ, that's Romans 3.25, incidentally, in case you're wondering. He does retroactively in the generations after whose sins have already been laid on Christ. All sins laid on Christ. Now, listen carefully to this. As it is, of course, you knew the most important message I've ever proclaimed. To a third generation and a fourth, therefore, we could add, and so on, until Christ, and so on, until the cross of Christ. In the generations before the Christ event, God deferred the penalty of iniquity or sins. And at the same time, he did not entirely acquit or cleanse. In the Christ event, all those sins fell on Christ along with, now listen, fluffy universalists, along with the penalty of sin. Or what Romans 6.23 calls, it's wages, It's the wages that sin itself pays, which is death. We fail to recognize just how infinitely grievous sin and sins are to God. And so, in all the generations of humanity before and after the event of the cross, God withheld the wages of sin so that they would be endured by Christ, who willingly accepted that wages, those wages, by experiencing a death that is impossible to describe, because the love that motivated him to do it is inconceivable. And it's impossible. It's an impossible love. But with God, all things are possible, including an impossible love. So then, for God, nothing is too extraordinary. What do you want to ask Him for? He does exceedingly abundantly above what we ask or think. Even when it seems He's not answering our prayers, He's holding out to give us something much, much better. So, God did not at the same time entirely acquit or fully cleanse humanity even though the sacrifices offered under Moses' law brought a kind of ritual cleansing and even allowed those who offered such sacrifices a ritual purification so they could return to fellowship with the people of Israel. Now, as the letter of the Hebrews, letter to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews nine thirteen and 14, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctifies for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In other words, God did not fully acquit or cleanse by the offerings offered under Moses' law, but he did fully justify and cleanse all through the blood of jesus christ romans chimes in like this he was delivered up for our offenses and raised up for our justification romans 425 in his faithful love chesed grace if you want to call it that and we should jesus gave himself up he gave himself up God did not spare his son, but freely gave him up or handed him over in behalf of us all. But the son also agreed for he loved me and gave himself over for me. He loved us and gave himself over for us. There was a union of wills in love, a union of wills called the love of God in Christ Jesus from which we cannot be separated ever it's inconceivable in fact it's absurd to entertain the thought and so again and this I have to say over and over again here is a union of wills of the father and the son but not only that a human and a divine will united in a love that wills the ultimate good of all those whom it loves and it loves all For God loved the world. You know that one. The glory that Moses asked to see. Is the glory of God's grace. Which he only saw the back parts of God pass by. Because the total expression of the glory of God's grace. Would not come until Jesus Christ was crucified. And when we look into the face of Jesus Christ. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God's grace shines into our hearts. That's the light that's on while we read Romans and while we come to a close of it very soon. So the glory that Moses asked for to see is the glory of God's grace, which is the glory of the grace of Jesus Christ, which in the last words of revelation and the last words of the scripture says is to all pantone. You show mercy to thousands and lay the father's sins on their children after them. Ultimately means that the sins not laid on the fathers keep getting passed on. If the father's sins keep getting passed on to the sons. Then the sons become fathers and their sins gets passed on to the sons. Until on and on it goes until all the sins of all humankind falls upon God's son. That's the gospel. And I say that with great volume and great emphasis because it is a gospel that is contested by centuries of human tradition, so-called Christian tradition. But even as all that we idolize is destined to disappoint, so that false gospel with its threat of a raging eternal hell idolized by many is destined to fall. You show mercy to thousands and lay the father's sins on their children after them ultimately means that the sins not laid on the father's keep getting passed on generation A, B, C, D till they hit the cross. Then after the cross, generation X, Y, Z retrospectively fell on Christ already. So this is why if you want more verification Romans 3:25 Paul says in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed that's all the sins previous to the cross not just one generation and it fell on the next speaking of some called of some kind of four generation curse which does not exist so then the only curse that exists is the curse that Jesus became so that the blessing of God would come to all of us. That's Galatians 3.13 and 14. And this is why in 2 Peter 3.15, the writer says, Paul in all of his epistles wrote of the patience of the Lord, which is salvation. His patience waited For all the sins of all mankind for all time to the cross to be laid on Christ. So really we should say the patience of the Lord is universal salvation. That's not a shock to me. The sins of all the generations of humanity were laid on Christ. So neither did God again fully acquit. He didn't charge sins, nor did he fully acquit or cleanse, even through the sacrifices that he prescribed under Moses' law. They were just foreshadows of a full acquittal, a universal justification by the God who justifies the ungodly and by the Son who died for the ungodly. Romans 4 5 and Romans 5 6. See, there's been a momentum building since our first lesson in Romans that is coming to a head here in the 139th lesson. Good time to read the 139th Psalm, probably. So then, I'm not going to do it now. What happened is God did fully acquit people after or at the cross when Jesus was, again, delivered up, handed over, given over for our offenses, that's not just ours alone, but the sins of the whole world, if you understand First John 2, 1 and 2. And raised up for our justification. Does that mean that only his resurrection means our justification and only his death means our expiation? No, it means both events are one. His death and resurrection are one event in which both expiation or the putting away of sins and justification and life for all humankind were accomplished. God is mighty in his deed. Oh, he's great in his resolve. And so are a lot of people. So are a lot of politicians. I will do this. I will do this. I will do this. Very few of them, once in a while, you get one that does, actually does what they say they're going to do. The rest are politics as usual, which to me is BS as usual. And of course, by that, I mean Bachelor of Science. So, I'm a sheep. I just got Bachelor of Arts at UVM. BA. Ba. See, I stop and do stupid jokes just because it gives you time to digest what we've been saying so far. What happened when Jesus was delivered up for our offenses is expiation. When he was raised from the dead, justification, which occurred both in his death and resurrection. So, Paul can say to the Corinthians, And whatever present condition they're in, he says, you were washed, that means thoroughly. You were sanctified, that means completely. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, our God. 1 Corinthians 6.11. Delivered up, paradidomi. Raised up, Resurrection are two deeds of the one event or one action of God that resulted in both the expiation of the sins of the world and the justification or the rectification, the setting right of all of humanity. The one whose eyes are on all the ways of the sons of men, that means all human beings, in his impartial justice, gives to each person according to his ways, and the results of his deeds. God's deeds in Christ. Jesus is the way in John fourteen six, And God gives to all according to his way. According to Jesus Christ. So we could say that God in a way rewards us for the finished work of Jesus Christ. The result of each person's deeds in sin the result of each person's deeds in sin would be the wages of sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin. That's not the wages God pays on sinners. That's the wages sin itself pays. If you follow sin to its ultimate conclusion, you get a death that isn't just physically dying, but eternally separated from God. So, this is the glorious gospel or the gospel of the glory of the Christ who is the image of God into whom all of us are to be conformed. Now, listen carefully to this. God allowed the results of the sinful deeds of every human being, the wages to be laid on the man, Christ Jesus. So did he pay a price? I wouldn't dare say no to that. Of course. In fact, you were bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your bodies. And so, God allowed the results of the sinful deeds of every human being to be laid on the man, Christ Jesus. The only mediator between God and sinful humanity in total, all of humanity. And Jesus willingly consented, listen carefully, because there is no universal horizon unless there is this center of God's love and the union of wills of the Father and the Son and the Spirit for that matter. Jesus willingly consented to receive these results or wages so that all human beings could receive the results of his meritorious obedience, which is justification, and eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans six twenty three. Human unity, the unity of all humanity, and human universality in death was overcome, and now there is a human unity and universality in life. Let me say it this way, for as in Adam all die. So, in Christ, all will be made alive first corinthians fifteen twenty two Now Yahweh looked down from heaven, it says psalm fourteen two and three psalm fifty three two and three quoted in romans three ten and twelve in a very central section, and he surveyed the human race in all of its times. We just read one of the Songs that Martin Luther wrote in a beer hall in Germany. That's where they used to sing their hymns. And Martin Luther said this. He said, God is is astride all of time and all of humanity at once. He stands astride all of time. And you can't disagree with that because God is omnipresent. And so he saw... The great and universal sinfulness in all of mankind in Adam in one sweeping gaze. He saw the entirety of the human race simultaneously and uniformly hostile to himself. But he didn't conclude after that survey. I will destroy them. Rather. He concluded. I will reconcile them to myself. I will make my enemies. To be at peace with me. I will make my enemies. My friends. Yahweh's will is a universally reconciling will and what he wills. He executes what he wills in greatness, what he resolves in his magnificence. He executes with his power and his deeds in Christ. Now here's another gear. Love wills the good of those it loves. Almost everyone from theologians to the man on the street like me would say yes. And I don't mean my me the theologian. I mean me. The man on the street. We all know that love wills. Or we could say for human love that it wishes or wants the good of those it loves. Love by its very nature, wills the good of those it loves. God's love, or better yet, God who is love, 1 John 4, 8 and four 16, wills the ultimate good to those whom he loves. And what he wills or resolves, he executes. What God wills, he executes. He is not only great, in purpose, boule, or resolve. He's also powerful in his bringing of that resolve to a conclusion by execution. God is great in his resolve to sum up everything in Christ, Ephesians 1.10, and powerful in his execution of it. To cite Aristotle's dictum once again, his maxim or his saying, That which is first in resolve is last in execution. Well, the first resolve that God made in eternity before the creation of time was to sum up everything in Christ Jesus. His son. That was God's first resolve. This was the resolve of love. Infinite, inconceivable, impossible love. The same love in which he, quote, predestined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself. According to his pleasure, which exerts itself graciously and his will to the praise of. Of his glorious grace that he favored us with in the beloved. That's Ephesians 1.6 following 1.5. And it's the same love by which God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. For love consists in this, says John, the elder, in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. Not that we loved God. But that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. But he had already said not ours only, but the sins of the whole world. God did not first resolve to judge the human race. In the last judgment. If God first resolved to judge the human race in a last judgment, then his first resolve would be judgment and his last would be the last judgment. But God first resolved to sum up everything in Christ. So judgment only serves that end. In fact, How shall I put it? God did not first resolve to judge the human race, but to sum up the human race and all of creation in Christ who is called the second man. The first man is Adam. He's called the last Adam. As opposed to protos Adam, he is eschatos Adam. Judgment or that which... Preachers like to call the last judgment serves this resolve or this resolution. Judgment serves the resolve of God to sum up everything in Christ. The last judgment is not the last thing then in what we call eschatology. The study of the last things. The last judgment happened in the crucified Christ. And every eye will see him, even those that pierced him. Means that that is going to be manifested universally in what is called the last judgment, the happiest day in human history, except for the resurrection of Jesus from the dead himself. And except for the span of the new creation held before us in the face of Christ. The last thing is that which was God's first resolve. The mystery of his will. To sum up everything in Christ, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 again. I can't emphasize those passages enough. The summing up, also called anakefaleao, as we've shown it before, is a creative as well as a salvific act. The crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection was the creation of a new heavens and a new earth and a making of all things new. Because by his outstretched arm, God created the heavens and the earth by reconciling heavenly and earthly things and beings in his death by the blood of his cross. These things are too high for me. They're too high for you. But God, who lives on high, can make them clear to you. We have the mind of Christ. The summing up is a creative and a saving act of God. Or we could say it's the final effect of a saving act that was enacted in Christ, crucified, buried, raised, and glorified at God's right side. This act was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This act or how God executed this summing up is God in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not charging the world with its trespasses. So it's not like, well, the father's sin, that's going to fall on the son, and the next generation and the next generation. No, he keeps holding on and keeps holding on until they all fall on Christ. Not imputing, charging, accounting the s- sins of the world to the world. So then, the sins of the fathers spoken of in Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Jeremiah echoing it in 32, 17 to 19 kept being passed on to their children and their sins to their children until they were laid on the one who knew no sin. In 2 Corinthians 5.21. There, we have a proactive action. God anticipating the action of the cross proactively did not charge sins to the generations before the cross. There we also have a retroactive action. God did not and does not charge the sins of the generations after the cross to those generations and those people. You say, then what are the reasons for all the sufferings? Well, there's a lot of reasons for sufferings. But it's none of them have to do with God punishing you for your sins. Now, the proactive or prospective action became retrospective or retroactive after the cross so that all the sins of all the generations following the cross were not laid on those generations either because they had already been laid on Christ. Now, here's, some, here's a fine point. Third gear. This does not mean, as we are sometimes misunderstood as saying, and I have been misunderstood as saying, This does not mean that God punished Jesus out of retributive justice. What it does mean is that Jesus, in perfect voluntary conjunction with the Father's saving will, accepted the punishment, if you want to call that, because I think that's what Paul meant by wages, The wages that sin pays are not pleasant. They're penalty. They're punitive. God isn't seen as the punisher here. Sin is the payer of wages. So again, it was not a punishment forcibly inflicted on an unwilling person. but a voluntary acceptance of the punishment inflicted by sin itself. With a view to the pardon of sinners, with a view to the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians 1.7, Colossians 1.14. And that's my point today. That's my point. My point today is this. There was a union of divine and human wills Volitions at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The father gave over. He did not spare. Remember we taught this Wednesday. He did spare Abraham's only son. That is his son through whom the seed would come. He did spare the heir Isaac. But he did not spare the seed through whom. Through by Isaac's own He did not spare the seed the son. He did not spare his only son, but he freely gave him over on behalf of us all and how will he not now freely give us all things. We explained that on Wednesday night because not only was Christ the son given but the heir of all things. So if Christ was not spared, it was so that he as the heir would share his inheritance with everybody and his inheritance just happens to be everything. The Father loves the son and has given all things into his hands. John 3:35. God has spoken unto us in these last days in his son who is the heir of all things. So God of course will not spare giving us all things because he gave his son who is also the heir. That's it'll dawn on you don't worry. Attentiveness doesn't mean you comprehend everything. I read books and I comprehend 30% of the book, but I still plug on. I still plug on. I'm not a theologian. I'm just a regular guy, but I plug on and I trust the Holy Spirit. And guess what happens? The other 60 or 70% comes to me in the years that follow because I read and plugged on. And even the plugging is God motivating putting the fire under me. I can't, I can't, I just can't take credit for anything except my sinfulness. Now, thank God, God took care of the consequences of that. Now, it was not a punishment forcibly inflicted on an unwilling person, but a voluntary acceptance of the punishment inflicted by sin itself with a view to the pardon of sinners. So this is my point. There was a union of divine and human wills at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father gave over or delivered up His Son on behalf of us all, the human race, fallen and sinful in Adam. But the Son Himself, united with the Father's will, received that punishment he loved us and gave himself over for us Titus 2 14 the will of God is that all human beings be saved and so he delivered up his son not to punish his son out of some retributive justice on God's part or out of wrath against sinful people but so that the son would receive that punishment, which sin itself meets out as its wages. Somebody says, but I'm paying for my sins. No, you're not. You're paying sometimes in life for stupid decisions. We're suffering because this is the agona, This is the clashing of two ages. We suffer because we live in a mortal humanity. Subject to sickness and disease and decay and death and decay after death. We suffer for a million reasons. But we do not suffer to atone for our sins or anybody else's. Now. Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5. The only mediator between God and humankind, meaning that he is equal to God and equal to mankind. Only mediator between God, and that means all of humankind, gave himself willingly as a ransom. That's a price for all. First Timothy two six A ransom for all who would otherwise have experienced forever the wages of sin, our compliance with it. We have no idea how sin and our compliance with it grieved God infinitely. We have no idea when we flippantly decide to make a decision against God's will and in accordance with human lust, we have no idea the grievousness of that sin. And therefore, we sometimes lightly pass over the price. Yeah, the price. That was paid. It would have been an everlasting death for us. And that is all of the human race. The sons of men, it says. The sons of men. The children of Adam. So there was and is and always will be a union of the wills. And thank God for this. There always will be, there was and there will be and there was at the cross. A union of the wills of the triune God in love. Christ offered himself, says the scripture, both as the priest who offers and the Lamb offered to put away sin. He offered himself without spot as the Lamb of God to the Father, and he did so through the Eternal Spirit, the triune God, the three persons that make up that being that we call God. And it's okay to call him God, even though that's a nebulous term. It's called Ha-Feos. You don't call him the universe. To call God the universe is to call God something that's corruptible because the whole universe is corruptible and it's only going to be transformed by an act of God. God is God. Call him Yahweh if you want. Call him Jesus if you will. But not. don't do it in my presence, please. Don't ever call him the universe. Now, somebody's going to do it just to be a pain in... And then I'm going to have to be merciful. (laughs) So. I just don't like seeing that go that way. Because there's a fluffy universalism that starts reading the Bhagavad Gita and equating it with the word of God. Or starts thinking that Islam as a religion is equated with Christianity somehow. Or that Jesus didn't pay a deep Price for our sins, or the sins somehow aren't even infinitely grievous to God. And don't you know that Jesus experienced sorrow for our sins, infinite sorrow for our sins, our sins. He experienced sorrow for our sins. He does not require us to experience sorrow for our sins, but he just might bring us to a sorrow as God would have it that might lead to a repentance from a way that would be self-destructive if we took it. The triune God is one divine being. So we can call God, God, as one being. But he exists eternally in three divine persons. Is that too much for you? It's too much for me. But so is God's love. I got no problem with everything about God being too much for me. If God was just enough for me, I'd get bored with him. Just like I get bored with all my idols that have fallen and shattered. Hopefully they're all fallen and shattered so far in my life. If I'm old enough now to see all of the things I idolize shattered. Then I must be a happier man than I was before. Unfortunately, so many things happen. In your old age, when you're not as young to enjoy them. If we'd only known all this stuff when we were young. Well, you can be youthful and old if you want. Or you can choose to be old. I know young people that are old and old people that are youthful. It really is a matter of disposition. It's a matter of faith, hope, love. But not only is there a three-person self-existence in God, God as one being is Love. But each of the three persons of the triune God is love. There is a perfect union of wills in God who is love. Love wills the good for those whom it loves. And God loves all of humanity and all of creation. So God wills the highest good for all of humanity and all of creation. But not only does God will the good, he does the good and has accomplished the good. Consequently, he not only did not spare his only son, but freely handed him over for us all. But not only that, he also wills that we be given all things with him, that we be joint heirs with Christ of a new creation of all things. You see, nothing is too extraordinary for the Lord. Fourth gear. And there's only four gears in this auto. Not only is there a union of wills in the three persons of the being that we call God. Ha in Romans 8.31. God hothaos for us. There is a union of wills in God and in Christ Jesus, the man. So there was a perfect union of wills in God and in the man, Christ Jesus. In the cross, there was the union of God's will with all mankind's will in the one representative of all mankind, Jesus Christ. Someone would say, we don't agree with his doctrine. And someone would say, how come I love Jesus Christ more than I ever have? both the divine and the human will willed salvation in all of humanity and the redemption of all of creation from its slavery to decay leading to death because always read 1 Corinthians 15:21 with 22 because it says because this death came through a man it came through a man so also the resurrection of the dead comes through a man. And then you know what it says? For just as in Adam, the man through whom death came, all die. So also in Christ, the man who is resurrected, all will be made alive. All means all. This is the solemn testimony of First Corinthians fifteen, twenty-one to twenty two. The sinful will of the first man and the first Adam brought death to all of humanity and decay to all of creation, or the threat of decay to all of creation. The sinless will of the second man and the last Adam, joined as it was in union with God's will, and in perfect meritorious obedience, even to the death of the cross. Brought all of humanity and all of creation into life. Romans 5, 18 and 19. This union of wills in love is called the love of God in Christ Jesus. Listen to it again. This union of wills is called the love of God in Christ Jesus. The human and divine will in one. It is this that climaxes Romans. For who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Which has embraced all of creation and all of humanity in all of its times. This love, this union of wills, is called the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is the last phrase we will attend to in Romans in eight thirty nine. I'm persuaded, Paul said. Now, I have to treat every message like the last one I'm ever going to preach. I'm ever going to preach. I treat every message like the last one I'm ever going to preach. So I want to round off this thought. Whoops, a fifth gear just appeared on the wheel. So in closing, nothing can separate the human race and the entire creation from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Because the love of God in Christ Jesus has reconciled all things in the heavens and the earth through the blood of the cross of the Son of God's love, Colossians 1.13, 12 and 13 make it, and 20. This reality, however, has yet to be universally manifested when God's house is finally full. Why has God tarried so long and waited so long to bring this to a consummation? Because Luke 14.23 tells us the reason. My house is not yet full. All the people that God wants to be in his house, in his new creation, have not yet been born. So he said, go out and compel them to come in. Compel them to come in from the hedgerows and the streets and the slums and the gutters. Make them come in so that my house will be full. And that's what Ephesians one ten says. To the filling up of God's house. That's the administration of the ages. Oikodomeo means the filling up of God's house. And that's when God will finish it. When his house is full. His house is already built. It just isn't full yet. When all of humanity comes in. Again, that's Luke 14, 23. There's a whole lot in. Every parable has a universal aspect. When the new full number of humanity inhabits the new creation, The new creation is God's habitat for humanity. I'm working for that organization. Habitat for humanity. God's. So we re-enter Romans. Look at Romans. See, we did get to Romans. First, to recap the last two verses we dealt with on Wednesday night. What can we say against these things? Rhetorically, the question is asked. Nothing is the answer, emphatically. If God is for us in all these ways... And he most emphatically is, then who can be against us? The answer demanded no one. Since indeed God did not spare his very own Son, but freely handed him over for us all, how will he not, with him, that's the Heir, the Son and the Heir, freely grant us all things? If God is for us in this way, and if he has already done this, I'm appealing to you here today, in Christ Jesus then it is impossible to conceive of being separated from God's inconceivable love in Christ Jesus by any agency, whatever. All of the adversities arrayed against us and all of the adversaries against us and the adversities endured by us in this clashing juncture of the ages All of those adversaries and all of those adversities are absolutely impotent and unable to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. These adversities, moreover, are actually a gift from God, which works toward an even more glorious weight or value of glory when the coming age has come in all its fullness. Romans 8.33, then, this anticipates where we're going Wednesday and As we close, who will bring an effective charge against God's elect? And then he asked this absurd question. Will God, the question is still there. God who justifies, is he going to bring the charge? The God who does nothing but justify the ungodly. What's he going to do? Accuse the ungodly. Or how about this one? Of course not is the answer. Verse 34, who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died? So that that justification could be realized. He died for the ungodly in Romans 5, 6. And God justifies the ungodly and does so justly. So who's going to say anything against that? Who's going to stand up in some supposed court and make an accusation that sticks? Christ? Christ? Who died and beyond that, who was raised up and who is at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf endlessly. He lives forever to make intercession for us as Hebrews. Of course not. So after God who justifies and Christ who died to secure the justification of all in him. No one else has any power to affect a different result. God who justifies, justly justifies, the ungodly. There's your justice. God is just too. Yes, and he justifies the ungodly because Christ died for the ungodly. Don't you believe in the justice of God? Well, then he he has to send people to hell because he's just. No, you say that God, therefore, is unjust and monstrous and evil. So I hope your idolatrous gospel is shattered. It was the ungodly for whom Christ died in Romans 5, 6. God's will who justifies in the love in which he wills the good for the ungodly is in union with Christ's will who died to bring about that justification, that setting right. And because the son who was not spared is also the heir of all things. Hebrews 1, 2, John 3, 35, then God will also certainly give us the ungodly who are justified everything and make us reign over an ever expanding universe where the government is upon his shoulders that bore the cross, the only Government of the ever expanding new universe will be the law of the cross, which has transformed evil into the supreme good and even supremely transformed death, the ultimate evil, into the very profit of being face to face with Christ. Amen. I can go home to be with the Lord now, but if I'm not, I'll be here Wednesday.